The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Hi there, and welcome to the eighth uh, webinar in our Smart Building uh, series. And uh, this one is titled uh, DC Power Distribution and the Digitization of the Built Environment. And uh, I'd like to welcome um, a couple of uh, my guests who've um, kindly um, you know, accepted my, my invitation to come and talk about this. Uh, first is uh, Mike Hook of LMG Building Intelligence. Uh, and second is Mike Gilmore from the Cabling Partnership. So um, I'll, ask themselves, I'll ask them to introduce themselves in a minute, but uh, just to start with, uh, first thing I wanted to say was, uh, if anyone has any questions, then uh, please, just, please just type them in. Uh, and uh, and then we uh, we can we can take them from there. Um, and then uh, and, and and again, you know, it doesn't really matter at any point. So so please just just go ahead and um, we we'll welcome any kind of um, interaction. So just to kick off, um, probably ask uh, Mike Cook first to um, to give a, an introduction to himself and and the business. Okay, thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, I'm Mike Hook and. Um, I'm sitting here with my colleague uh, Owen Williams, and we basically run LNG's Intelligent Building and uh, really the Digital Workplace Experience um, division. So um, we really provide um, intelligence within the built environment, really both um, uh, right the way across the commercial sector, um, incorporating hotels, office space, even data centres. Um, yeah, yeah, education as well. So it's really um, looking at the, the both the building of the um, of the built environment, the construction, if you like, but also the day-to-day uh, -day operation. So moving right away through from the project phase into FM, and really um, making that whole uh, digital experience uh, joined up for the customer. Okay, and I know when we spoke previously, you talked about the work you do with harvesting data. Uh, yeah. From from systems yeah. and buildings, and that's becoming a lot more of, of your business now, right? Very much so, uh, uh, Jim. You know, we started off. Um, we've, we've come in really from the IT side, but we've got much more as more um, of the building maintenance subsystems, IP security, AV, and everything has come onto the. Um, it's been digitised and come onto the um, uh, the building services network. Really, we've got far more involved in that, and over the last three years. Basically, um, we've grown a new business on the back of um, you know the digital building services land or the landlord's land, if you like, that operates the building, um, incorporating the, the, the BMS as well as um, as well as the security networks and everything else. So um, yeah, and, and as as you rightly say, we use it really for the customer as a means to an end, really, because all those digital devices um, and a whole host of sensors out there, whether they're environmental sensors or motion detection sensors or, or beacons, um, we harvest data from those uh, subsystems, the utilization data, the occupancy data, and feed that back um, to the customer so they can make better decisions about how they operate and use the building. So yeah, it, it's sort of like um, growing legs really from, from, um, from you know, the initial movement um, to a networked world really. Yeah, absolutely, and the building internet of things. Which yes, we, very much so. Yeah, and yeah. and obviously the, the the movement to a DC environment, um, we've seen that over the last three years as well. A huge amount of interest in in power over Ethernet and um, 
and uh, USB-based charging and such forth. So we can see in the not too distant future the office space being predominantly uh, DC, and, and that's sort of, sort of how we got to know uh, Mike Gilmore and the IET. Yep, and great, and that sort of um, quickly ties me into to, to Mike Gilmore. Perhaps you, uh, Mike, can you give me uh, an intro and, and talk about what you, what your business, what you do? Yes, thanks, Jim. Um, yes, I go back with Mike Hook a very long way to a long time before we ever had things called building intelligence. Um, the the cabling partnership actually is what some people know my company as, but in actual fact, it's a limited company called eReady Building, and eReady Building has fingers in many pies uh, in terms of. Uh, Historically, we've project managed and specified large uh, cabling infrastructures. Um, however, the reason I'm on the call this afternoon is because of my uh, involvement directly in the standardization of uh, DC power distribution mm-hmm. um, and also some activities with the IET. So, very quickly, um, the work on uh, the whole topic of uh, DC power distribution um, has been handled by the IET recently in a code of practice, which we'll talk about at the end of the uh, of the webinar. Um, the most relevant part of that entire document is the one covering the use of um, telecommunications cabling. As a, uh, as a means of, di- of distributing that DC power. Mm-hmm. There are many other ways of delivering DC power, but the one that's focusing our minds at this part of, the, uh, the, the, of our uh, development is that over uh, telecommunications cabling, i.e. for most people that means Category 5, Category 6, and so on, uh, data cabling. Um, with that in mind, uh, I chair the European Standards Committee, which is directly involved in both defining the standards for that cabling, but also doing an awful lot of the work on determining what the impact of using that cabling for DC power actually is. Yeah. Um, because people may have noticed that if you put power down cables, uh, they get warm. How much they get warm by depends rather what the size of the conductor and the vo- and the current you're putting down there. And when you're using a cable for something it's not originally designed for, we have to take care what we're doing. Having said that, um, the last few years has seen a rapid growth of our what we would call structured cabling standards or generic cabling standards into these areas to allow the distribution of power and uh, that is my prime uh, driver at the moment if you will in the standardization activity uh, both in Europe and international level Um, so the that's my background I also do chair quite a lot of other things but that is particular not not particularly relevant to this meeting today yep great uh, question here from the floor. Um, it says, are you familiar with the eMERGE Alliance? And if so, are you affiliated in any way? Uh, personally, I am aware of the eMERGE Alliance because they, they, the, a gentleman from that organization gave, a, gave an online presentation at the publication of the IET Code of Practice uh, recently, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, 
their activities in the predominantly in the US were very well received by those members at the uh, at the, the code of practice launch and vice versa. Okay, great. So we wanted to to kick this off uh, first with an introduction to distributed building services using telecommunications cabling. I think Mike Gilmore, you wanted to uh, to start with that. Can you can you sort of give us an introduction into it? Yes. Um, I think uh, not wanted to spend too great a time on the on the sure. detail of the standardization activity, but we do have to have some numbers, I'm afraid. Um, we have historically had um, standards for structured cabling, both in the US, um, in the 568 series, in the TIA 568 documents. We also have the ISO 11801 standard. Uh, which has uh, been used for many, many years. I was involved right at the start of that. And also in Europe, we have our EN5173 series, which in the UK, because we are part of the European community, at least for now, uh, is a British standard, BSEN5173 series. And around about four years ago, we started looking at... Um, the use of that structured cabling solution for um, moving away from the desk where we currently, you know, everyone thinks about office cabling, you know, two outlets to the desk and so on, so on, so on. We started thinking about what happens if we try and uh, connect up devices which are not user specific. So we're talking about things like um, uh, sensors for perhaps for heating, ventilation. Um, access control, door control, cameras, digital signage, alarms, all of those guys, as well as obviously these days, more and more so, wireless access points and uh, distributed antenna systems. And we produced and published um, BSEN 5173-6, which is actually called Distributed Building Services, uh, a, a couple of years ago. Um, now that document just uses the same components as we have for all our other structured cabling systems but just uses them in a subtly different way. Um, that was directly linked uh, and is directly linked to the developments that the IEEE are making in using that data cabling for the provision of power. Um, and at the moment, as we as we speak today, we have uh, two types of uh, what people tend to call power over Ethernet, but is actual fact that isn't actually a copyrighted term. Um, but we talk about power over Ethernet um, as if it's an IEEE standard. In actual fact, it's the power over Ethernet is a generic term, mm -hmm. but the power over Ethernet type two type solutions deliver around about thirty watts. To uh, a device. Okay. Um, and what can that, things that what what would that power around? Um... Um, well, that would actually power quite a wide range of devices. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in fact, mo many of the devices we'd like we'd like to power actually are using less and less power. Mm -hmm. So there's two things going on. One is the amount of power we're delivering to the end of the cable is able to be going up. Yeah. Because the IEEE now are looking at moving up to 95 watts delivered. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also have devices which are actually using less and less power. 
so we have a convergence in that respect. Uh, but I think what we need to look at is, um, you know, going from the very early days of the IEEE work, which was Type 1, which only delivered about 13 watts, a lot of devices are perfectly happy to uh, communicate and operate with a power supply of 13 watts. Then they move to the 34, or so people talk about 25, but it's between 25 and 34 watts. And now we're moving up even more to 50 watts, 71 watts, and 95 watts. So the maximum level at the moment now being considered, and pretty much, um, although I say being considered, it's what it will be delivered, what will be standardized, is a maximum value of 95 watts. Um, that can power a huge range of devices. Um, I would also point out that uh, there are other people selling things that they call power over Ethernet mm. for which the amount of power injected and delivered is significantly higher than 95 watts um, and that's why I actually differentiate between what the IEEE are doing which is actually well matched to what the cabling guys are standardizing and, and, and being careful to analyze properly and some of the products on the marketplace which are actually delivering way beyond that 95 watts. And what, what uh, problems? The highest we know at the moment is about 232 watts is, right. the, is, the, is the specified value. Now to be fair to that company they do put lots of caveats and say you know you've got to be very very careful how you deliver and distribute the cables in bundles and so on. Right. But nevertheless we just should make the point there is a there, there, when we talk about power over Ethernet, it's always as well to be thinking about what the IEEE mean, because that is what the cabling standards guys also have modelled. Right, and that's what the that's the standard that everyone really should be working to. But there are people who are going um, beyond that. Yeah, well, I, I yes. To be fair, you, I can't really um, say that people shouldn't try and do more, because it all really depends upon exactly how you're. Installing and, and designing your cabling system. Okay. Um, there are limits. There are limits that we would, you know, the, the, all the voltages are common. We're dealing with ELV. We're dealing with extra low voltage uh, DC. Mm -hmm. um, we're not doing anything more than that. But the things that the, the things that differentiate these different systems is the current that's being used. And at the moment, we are migrating with the IEEE to a, a half an amp per conductor, essentially. Um, which um, is something we have been modeling, we understand in the cabling community and we know how to react to that. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's the important thing. We're going back to the, the distributed building services with the standard 5173-6 and the work of IEEE to upscale their, um, their power delivery and the downscaling of power demands from devices, you've yep. got a situation where in virtually any building you can now consider your telecommunications cabling infrastructure to be something way more than delivering something simple to your desk and we're actually looking at the, the use of that cabling to anywhere in the building and we're already seeing large customers building what I call super ceiling infrastructures, in other words, above the, above the suspended ceiling. Right. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's more true. complex. We, we, we seem to be installing more cables above the ceiling now than in the floor void when it was, when it was to the user yeah. um, desk space, as you know. But now it's mainly in the ceiling void for all those um, you know, building subsystems that you mentioned, all uh, uh, safety and extra low voltage. 
yeah, that's 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 where we're up to. And as I say, the the standardisation on 5173-6, which is now actually being replicated internationally, um, in in a, in, in a standard called 11801-6, supports that direct delivery. But what we've moved away from, I would point out, and just finish this uh, at this point, yep. what we've really moved away from is the idea that we have office cabling and we have data center cabling and we have uh, industrial premises cabling. What we actually have is cabling that goes to desk points and we have in certain types of buildings, cabling that goes to servers in other types of parts of buildings, but in all the buildings we will have this distributed building services cabling which is able to power a huge range of devices and that is a, a massive change compared to where we were maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, let me just hear, there's a question just come in. Uh, are there installation caveats? Uh, CAT cables couldn't be run near Troffer's UL NFPA restrictions as a low power cable. Um, when we start talking about UL and, and codes, um, we have to take each country separately, really. Right. Yeah. Um, so um, later on in this presentation, I'll be talking about the standardization aspects for the UK. Um, one thing we do know is um, in one of the things that's led the IEEE to pretty much restrict themselves to 95 watts is a an, an interpretation, particularly in the United States, of UL uh, standards which indicate that the maximum power per cable to be delivered should not exceed 100 watts. But there, and that, that's something that <laughs> I frequently dis discussed with some of the IEEE guys saying I think that's a very unique way of reading that standard but nevertheless if that's what they want to limit themselves that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but the, in terms of the different codes I know we will have, we, we, we do not have, we will not have in the UK um, restrictions on running those cables in conjunction with other services provided the voltages are of the right level and we are here only talking about ELV levels we're not we're not talking about anything beyond that and in those circumstances all the normal rules for running data cables in conjunction with power cables actually still apply okay so the quick answer is there'll be, there'll be effectively no difference or no additional requirements there, there might be lots of additional requirements in terms of um, uh, ventilation, spacing, bundle sizes, and we're working on that at the moment, which I want to come to later, but not in relation to where they're running in conjunction with. Okay, thanks. My, my some question I wanted to ask next was really sort of more of an overarching one about the advantages that this has over tra a traditional mains power supply. Uh, and does low voltage DC power distribution in, in buildings, you know, what are what are the, the the advantages that we can we can really see? And I wanted to ask both of you that. So I don't know if Mike, maybe you wanted to go first. Yeah, I, um, I think you know, as in the big picture, so to speak, I think yeah. that the migration towards DC, we're on a we're sort of like at a we're fast approaching a tipping point. I think that 
but the amount of digital devices coming into the, the marketplace now, I think there's estimates, the market estimates that there's going to be by 2025, 50% of all devices are going to be digital. So um, the migration from an AC uh, workspace into a DC workspace is, is probably long overdue. Um, and we're looking at uh, sort of obviously moving towards that more DC environment. And, and I think everyone, obviously the, the, the other area is efficiency of it. I think, you know, it, everything comes with now adapters. There's two and a half billion adapters uh, uh, around the world and a billion adapters are added every year. You know, that, they're only 50% efficient. So that really equates to uh, over 200 billion kilowatt hours of wasted electricity every year. So just, I think there's a big driver, big just, driver in general from, right. from, from, from towards the move the DC environment. Right, and that's just from converting the AC that comes into the building into yes. DC. Yeah, yeah. Right. And in terms of the, looking down at the sort of like the, the, the building level, if you like, um, it's really been driven by the developers, um, the end users, and also um, the landlords, really, of trying to get a much more efficient, connected building. But also, they save a lot of money during the construction phase, rather than having separate, multiple subsystems, all with their own containment, all with their own cabling all with their own control and management systems, all with their own programs, consolidating everything into a common building services land has huge uh, advantages in terms of cost, but also in terms of ongoing maintenance and management. So there's a big um, impetus from, from uh, the, uh, the, the developer and, uh, and construction community towards move towards a, a, a digital DC environment. Right, and, and have you seen or have been working on projects where the developer is is demanding this now. Yeah, very much. In fact, some of the construction companies themselves are adopting that that approach. Uh, one 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 of the largest construction companies in the UK. We just provided a full um, uh, digital DC uh, SELV um, network for those guys for their building services support. Um, you know, their lighting, their LED lighting is running across a low voltage environment as well. As, as Mike said, it's not um, it's not IEEE um, uh, POE, but it's still a, 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 a safety and extra low voltage environment. Mm -hmm. So um, you know the lighting, um, the eyepiece cameras, um, doors, uh, digital signage, everything Mike mentioned, um, getting the advantage of actually being able to manage that under a single platform, and also the ongoing maintenance as well. Um, obviously, having one um, multi multi um, capable individual that can carry out tasks for multiple subsystems. Um, that's it, even before you start mining the, um, the data that each of these digital um, devices is, is, um, is pulling from the environment. Right, yeah, and actually that was going to be my next question, talking about, about that and the building experience. Um, uh, Mike Gilmore, was there anything to add you wanted to add? about this kind of look at the advantages it yeah, has? I, I, think, I think Mike pretty much covered everything except to say that, that there, there actually are a number of different phases of this whole thing. Um, before we ever got as far as considering distributed building services cabling, um, there are organisations or there are, um, if you will, um, trade groups who have been producing a variety of different building services standards um, and unlike the world of telecommunications which moved to a common infrastructure many many years ago 
um, some of the building services people have very much focused on selling, uh, and uh, to their own detriment really, uh, selling um, systems which are cable specific. Mm. And uh, we tried to meet their, uh, <laughs> we, we tried to offer them a new standard cable, whatever they would agree to, whatever they would have as an agreed cable solution, and they couldn't come back to us with an agreed solution that they would all work to. So in actual fact, this, um, this whole business about moving everything, as Mike was saying, onto a common cabling infrastructure is actually the result of the intransigence of many of the building services uh, uh, trade associate or trade groupings. Um, and what we're now seeing, as Mike said, we're seeing so many different solutions now being IP enabled effectively. And although some of the lighting systems that Mike mentioned might actually not be power over Ethernet, many of them are actually driven at the more at the command level or the platform level uh, using an Ethernet solution even if the actual drive over the cable to the end device is not truly power over Ethernet. Yeah. Um, now whether or not this is more energy efficient is, a, is you have to take each individual solution and say well you know how would you do that in a different way? Could you do that? How would you do that in conventional uh, AC cabling? How do you do it in DC solutions? Um, and all of all of these things, the more devices that want DC at the end point need to have these adapters. And as Mike said, these are very inefficient. The other, the other big advantage of DC lighting particularly is it's arguably infinitely controllable. And that actually, although you do lose power delivering current down a data cable, the savings you can achieve in terms of managing that on a, on a digital level, in other words, a, 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 an infinitely variable level, tends to balance that out to a, a large degree. Right. So, so it gives you the, much the, more the, control. Give you much more control over can, the over the right. You can if you build, as Mike's going to talk about in a moment. You can if you build your system. Um, with that being the intention, if you wish to control and manage your building, DC gives you the ability to do so way more, way more efficiently than um, a, 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 an AC conventional uh, delivery system. And the real benefit of having this distributed building services solution is that it gives you that common infrastructure as opposed to having all these individual separate building systems um, which Mike was talking about. Yeah. So it, you have to come at this in, a, in at least three or four different attack directions. Yeah, right. I've got uh, one comment here and uh, one question. Um, first is a comment. Um, in order for CO2 emissions to be reduced, uh, central distributed power is giving away to more distributed power, say installed in medium to large buildings. Many of these power generating units would would prefer to generate DC, uh, which would be Correct. more suitable to the devices that need power. So um, we do not, uh, if we get two plus two makes five, no conversion from AC to DC, reducing emissions and saving cost. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely correct. That's one of the driving factors behind the IET code of practice, which we'll talk about later on, because they were looking at it even, a, even in a wider view than, than I've just been talking about. We're looking at one particular segment of this. But obviously, if you've got large amounts of DC, uh, convert, of DC generated power, yeah. then obviously the, 
the removal of an AC system is very, very important indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the question, uh, much of the, co- uh, the conversation has been on PoE, which would imply ACDC at the Ethernet switch. Are there any discussions in the UK about building level DC distribution for EV electric vehicle charging, on-site generation and electrical storage? These are the other aspects that the IET have started to look at. So in other words, as I said before, right at the start, we are only talking about a particular segment. But when we come to the end, I'll discuss the other things that the IET code of practice uh, deals with. And even when I say deals with, they are actually at the start of this process. Mm -hmm. So the IET uh, are busy in areas which I'm not involved in, which uh, such as uh, vehicle charging, etc. We have looked at some of the bigger issues of converting existing AC cabling infrastructures to DC powering as well. That's also covered in the IET work. But it's a long, that is actually quite a long way from the, 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 the digitization of the built environment. That's, that's one stage beyond, or it's in a different, it's in a different, uh, it's a different, not a different field, but it's in a different area, um, which we can talk about. Um, and there's lots of people more, more knowledgeable than I am about that. Sure. I think that's another webinar, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, the two or three webinars, <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So my, my ne- and I know we kind of touched on this already um, about this concept of, of building services integration. Uh, but my next question was, uh, why does it, uh, it reduce or this concept of DC reduce total co- cost of occupancy and also improve the building experience? And that was going to be a question for, for Mike Hook. Yeah, I, I think it, obviously we sort of semi-covered it, but I think if you're looking at um, deploying a um, variety of different subsystems uh, with multiple sensors or a network of sensors or beacons, yeah. it really does allow us to, to draw real-time quantitative analytics um, from those um, subsystems about how they're, how they're being used um, and also by whom. And um, in terms of... In terms of uh, occupancy levels within buildings, um, you know, it allows us to, to have really interactive um, energy management strategies, uh, interactive service management strategies as well, all occupancy-based um, uh, management, basically. So if you had occupancy-based space management, you don't need to provide extra space if you have real-time data coming back about how many people are, are using a particular building, a particular floor. I can set my um, power um, uh, usage and, um, and, and HVAC um, levels to, to that appropriate occupancy-based information. Um, so literally, it's 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 occupancy-based energy management, occupancy-based maintenance as well. What's the point of cleaning and um, and uh, cleaning a room, for example, if if it hasn't been used? Mm. Um, so really, looking at looking back at, at the sensor information. And the utilisation data that we were gained from these um, these building subsystems, if you can harvest them and form analytics, it really does allow you to have a, a real-time living, breathing um, uh, facilities management model, really intelligent facilities management. How much easier is integration of these different systems if they're already on the same? I think you referred to it as like the building services LAN. Does it make your job as an integrator? That much easier. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it, um, either you'd have them have all the, the elements, if you like, all the subsystems 
integrated together. You integrate where it makes sense. Um, rarely do people have a you know a manager of managers, so to speak, like an integrated workspace management platform, mm. or they can operate them as individual element managers. So um, it's really being able to pull the necessary data you want and visualize it in a format that helps you. And that's normally in a form of heat maps and visualizations that we provide back to the, the customers for the real estate team, uh, teams. If I can, even on the early days of the, coming out of the, the building strategy, by bringing all the stakeholders together, understanding the requirements as in from the, all the different trades, from the BMS people, if you can capture that all very much early on, then also the implementation of a of common buildings and services land is very much easier. And there's a lot more benefits and come from that from that more of a collaborative working to a development of the scheme. Mm. Yeah. And also the other the other point I was going to mention with this sort of um, obviously DC and we were talking about power ethernet extra low voltage, does that sort of change perhaps the contractual um, side of, of the you know actually building a new building? Because um, if some of these systems now become or, or can be installed by, you know, different people, it's obviously historically the, the HVAC and, and that side of the, the, the environmental is much more about the mechanical contractor. Are you seeing that changing? I think, um, again, it's sort of how it's more of a procurement and the packages. So, and again, it's identifying early on what are those key drivers, what the key requirements are. The right. building services land is a, it will enable a very flexible way of working. You're designing in flexibility right from day one. So I've got a building services land, I've got my structured cabling system, my safe extra low voltage environment. Then the ability to add and change is a lot more easier in that environment than it is with all the different uh, disparate systems. So yeah, there are key benefits. Procuring as a as a complete package is a lot. There's a lot of benefits that will come from that, rather than lots of different subcontractors all doing those elements. So uh, the management of the building services there is, is is key because again, you could even get into much an early on IP address management and how the old, how the whole network will all come together. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. In answer, you know the way. The way packages are being procured will change, but there will be more benefits coming out at the back of it. Yeah. Okay. So, in um, you know, in if we sort of gaze into our crystal ball a little bit, how do you see this move towards DC power distribution affecting the future of smart buildings? What? what well, I, I think that the uh, obviously the, the DC power is is vital within the building to really enable. The, uh, the building Internet of Things, which, uh, which I know you, you've uh, been a strong advocate for. Mm -hmm. But that building Internet of Things, um, really, we took, I know that Mike Gilmore hates the word intelligent buildings because buildings don't become intelligent until you get people in them. Um, but I think the future really is about digitizing the entire environment, so not just the building Internet of Things, but also digitizing the occupants so that they can interact and engage with the building and with each other in that building. So I think we're going to see a lot more of um, the introduction of things like um, trilateration using mobile devices or identification devices that allow you to interact with the building to improve your experience of the building for the users. 
and visitors as well. As I, as I intimated at the beginning, we've done a lot of um, this type of installations in five-star hotels. That five-star experience, people want to bring it into the commercial environment. People want to bring it into into the into the workplace. So that that excellent experience you might have in a five-star hotel room, they want that in the office space. Uh, so I think it's going to be mainly about customized individual workplace experience based around your location uh, within the building and also your credentials or what you're entitled to have preferences. and your preferences as well. Right. So we're seeing really uh, a move towards digitization of the of the building itself but also digitization of the employees whether that's by using a personal device, a wearable or a or, or whatever to digitize the individual and then how you engage with the building, with the other people within that building to collaborate and work more efficiently. Right. I mean, when we started out this probably three or four years ago, it was all about reducing total cost of occupancy, as, as, as you said in the last question. Mm. It was all about you know, doing things, being more efficient with energy, more efficient with space, being more efficient with maintenance. But over the last 18 months, it's changed around massively, and it's been about how do I create the best workspace experience for my employees how do I attract the, and retain the best talent? I've got to have a better quality of environment and a, and a more joined-up experience because I've got to I've got to I've got to retain the right the right people and also I've got to make them I invest a lot of money and then I've got to make them productive. Right. So we really describe it as when you get the building internet things and digitise the offices, you really get sort of world of invisible buttons if you like, and just by moving through the, through the space with your credentials, a series of events happen around you that make your experience, that five-star experience, and make you more productive um, in your daily tasks. Mm, that's really interesting, that, that shift in uh, mindset of the building. Of the but also, not, not to forget, uh, Jim, that you've also got to do it at 50% less than you were doing it last year. So <laughs> that total cost of occupancy hasn't gone away. It's just now being couched in the fact I can get I can I can do all these excellent things about the experience and productivity but also I'll get a double whammy I can do it, uh, less operational cost as well if I use the right platform and that yeah. all goes back down to that digitization right yeah and designing the right the right software to manage all of this yeah yeah I think it's worth also adding in just from the from the from the standardization perspective um, one of the other things that is very, very important at the moment to the IEEE is the concept of single-pair Ethernet, um, which means that our standard four-pair cables, um, although the single-pair Ethernet is targeted at things like automobiles and, 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 and uh, other transport vehicles, I have a sneaky feeling that in the not-too-distant future we're going to have uh, gigabit devices on single pair cables and those single pair cables are going to be able to fit on the end of our existing four pair cables uh, in one way shape or another so what we're going to end up with is not only our existing distributed building services uh, implementations but we're also going to have uh, potentially a quadrupling of the potential connectivity to devices and it's one of those strange things. The thing, you know, we talk about the future of smart buildings. Uh, in some respects, the future of smart buildings is 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 only just beginning now because a lot of those devices, your building Internet of Things, 
-hmm. is going to be based around distributed building services cabling running some form of power over Ethernet on a common platform and the sort of things that we're going to be able to do which Mike has just basically explained you know when I first started listening to what Mike was saying you know last year the year before uh, it all seemed amazing that we could start to do these things with these uh, wearables and this, these, these devices that people would be able to interact with the building. I don't even think we've even scratched the surface yet of what may happen in the next five years to ten years with the, with the, with the development of, of, of uh, single pair Ethernet, gigabit Ethernet on a single, a single pair of uh, conductor. So I think um, that, but the good news about that is that would not require any reinstallation of infrastructure because your infrastructure is fundamentally already there. Yeah, I think the key. I think the key to that, Mike, is it's going to be ubiquitous and it's going to be cheap. So yep. that so that gives that gives you know an immense opportunity for people to write apps really to do any task if the infrastructure is there. Anyone can write an app to do anything. Using that infrastructure to locate and identify people that may want that service. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I know we wanted to then. I mean, in the time we've got left, uh, look at some of this IoT code of practice. Uh, and Mike Gilmore, I don't. We were going to look at sort of what design and planning guidance already exists, um, and that you've been working on. Yeah. Um, before we get to the IET code of practice, I think um, because we've been talking about, uh, we've been very specific and, and we're talking about uh, preferably IEEE implementations of, of power over Ethernet. Um, the, unlike most uh, solutions of cabling and uh, the application running over it, as I said right at the start, one of the things we've been uh, always concerned about is the fact that telecommunications cabling or category 5, 6, 7 cables etc um, were not originally designed to run levels of power of the type that we are discussing and therefore we had to be very very careful that what how we manage that uh, process. So I would just make a couple of points first of all before we get to the IET work um, the first bit of work that's been done was actually done very many years ago in 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 the international arena uh, when we started looking at the 12 watts or 13 watts or 34 watts implementations of of, um, of uh, power over Ethernet for the IEEE, and one of the most important things we were looking at there was any impact of heating on the cables um, when the current is passing down, and the, the one of the original uh, findings was that there was no substantial or substantive uh, temperature increase. Um, in fact, we were actually looking at running a 100 cable bundle with all the pairs powered, every single wire powered with a certain level of current, and we were getting uh, a 10 degree rise in temperature across the bundle. Um, we've moved on from that point. We've moved on in terms of the current being delivered, and we've also moved on, as Mike was just sort of suggesting, that we've also moved on from the position of, uh, you know, 100 cables with all being powered permanently on, which maybe five years ago, eight years ago when we first started doing this work would have been a ridiculous scenario, so we weren't really bothered about temperature increases on cables. 
we're now actually looking at running uh, lighting systems which are permanently on. Uh, we are now running more and more of these super ceiling cabling infrastructures and therefore we had to take seriously these changes in uh, in, in usability when, of our cables. Sorry, just um, um, so I'm, a question for me. When you say yeah. a super ceiling uh, cabling structure, Cabling infrastructure is above the ceiling, but largely. So, but and that is a large quantity of um, of cabling going in. Just it's potentially a, a, it's potentially because it has so many uses. Uh, it's potentially a much larger cabling volume than we previously used to have under the floor. Which is, again, I'm being very generic here. Uh, we used to have underfloor cabling to desk points, and everything above the ceiling was largely lighting and somebody else's responsibility. Yeah. We've now moved to a world where, as we said right at the start, many, many uh, designers are now looking at their uh, super ceiling infrastructure as being primarily a DC environment and a telecommunications cabling environment. Uh, and much of that comes from the need to restrict access to the devices that are attached. People don't really want users to have access to uh, be able to disconnect wireless access points or cameras or whatever so there's a, there's a general desire to to put that cabling above ceilings and because there's so many different applications possible there's a lot more cabling going to be installed mm. um, which is good for the cabling industry in actual fact um, but obviously uh, it might not be quite so good for the, uh, <laughs> the conventional AC cabling industry but the, a number of things have come out of that um, one, we need to look at uh, thermal increases, we need to look at how we run our cables, do we need to provide ventilation, do we need to limit the size of bundles, do we need to um, look very carefully at things like uh, insulated spaces and we've done an awful lot of work on that in Europe and there's already a uh, published uh, British standard, what they call a PD, a published document uh, which has the gen general number 50174-99-1. It's a technical report, but it provides the basis for all of this discussion. Mm -hmm. But we do actually already have standards for the installation of telecommunications cabling in all types of locations, and those standards will have to be updated, uh, and we've already started that work in Europe. We started it... Uh, effectively four months ago um, by looking at revising the entire series of installation standards to take on board some of those uh, recommendations and maybe discussing them as requirements for our building infrastructures. So enable, you know, to determine what people expect to be able to achieve with these cables and matching the installation uh, in accordance with that. But it's it's not just the matter of the, the simple temperature that the cables get to when they're delivering power. We also need to look at um, what does that do to the cables in those bundles which are actually delivering very high speed data at the same time. So one of the biggest opportunity areas for super ceiling cabling is wireless access points. The future wireless access points are going to be demanding very much the highest uh, data rates uh, available to us. Unlike an individual desk point, um, we will be looking at multi-gigabit uh, delivery systems to wireless access points. And we certainly don't want the heating of cable bundles surrounding that particular cable to be affecting the distance over which we can transport that. 
So there is a need for standardization in this area and that is something, as I say, we've been working on for quite a long time. There are standards published in the UK and we're now updating our, our installation standards, our full installation standards rather than simply technical reports and that will, that will be completed next year. Okay, there's a question um, coming in here. Yeah, sure. Um, has the study, and I think probably talking about that, that PD uh, document you mentioned, yep. uh, have they uh, complete, uh, completed, um, found that there is a potential temperature rise problem within a cable bundle? Was their study um, in line with the move to 95 watts? Oh yeah, well we went way beyond 95 watts in, in the work we were doing. Uh, we were delivering double that in certain cases. Um, the, that is, the, question is, the, the question is a difficult one to answer because it depends whether what people perceive to be a, a, a difficult temperature. Right. There are three separate temperatures we need to deal with. One which is the temperature above which the cabling disintegrates that's one temperature, which is generally speaking a very high temperature. Uh, there is one which is, goes beyond its supplier's warranty, which is a very much lower temperature, typically around about the 60 degree, uh, 60 degree centigrade uh, area. And we don't want to actually deliver temperature increases anywhere near that. And the reason we don't is because the distance of transmission of those high bitrate uh, networks falls substantially. So a lot of people will talk about uh, not the 90 meter rule. Um, consultants, building consultants, designers often talk about wanting to have their outlets within 90 meters of a comms room. Uh, in actual fact that's never been a real rule, that's just something they made up as they went along. It's actually only valid at 20 degrees centigrade. So as long as all your cable at 20 degrees centigrade then your 90 meter rule applies. But of course, most people's buildings don't operate at 20 degrees centigrade. They operate higher than that. And obviously, if we start injecting power into our cables as well, we start to increase the temperature of the bundles. So we do need to be careful about how we design systems. But the idea that we would take them to a temperature where the, even the warranty of the cable would be uh, sub subject to dispute, you would never do that. Never mind take it to the point where the cable would be in in itself at uh, risk and certainly not of uh, in case anybody's bothered about this not bursting into flames that's never been on the agenda mm. um, so we've actually in the in the work in Europe and in many other places um, we've subjected the cable bundles to, to current levels way higher than is currently being planned by IEEE in their latest uh, agenda but we obviously have to have a model uh, for what happens if you do inject more current and therefore the modeling we've done and we, the testing we've done takes all of that into account. Right, yeah. But essentially you will get, you know, there's nothing you can do, you put current down the wire, it gets hot. The question is how hot does it get and what is the impact of that? Hmm. And what I would try to do is to make sure we've analyzed that properly. And I presume, obviously Mike, it, it makes a difference of what, what type of cable infrastructure you've got in terms of conductor yes. size it has a huge impact on that. Well, yeah, I mean, we've, the people have talked about, I mean, I don't, I'd, I'd prefer not to go down the, 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 the argument about, um, of, of, you know, the different categories doing different things at the moment. We can, we can read about that at any stage. 
but yeah, the, 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 if, if you have larger conductors, you have lower resistance, therefore your temperature rises lower. If you have fatter cables, bigger cables, you get lower temperature increases, but then you need more space <laughs> in, your, in your trunking. So there are, there, 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 all, uh, there are balances to all of these things, but fundamentally, uh, the one thing we don't want people to do is to ever increase the temperature of a bundle of cables, in, even, in a, 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 even in a locality in, inside the building, beyond the warrantable uh, temperature from the supplier, because that would be a critical factor for us. We'd, we, that's not something we would ever want to do. So we know, basically, we know what happens now. We've done all the work. We know what happens when you deliver a certain level of current down a certain number of cables in a bundle. And we know what happens if you if you do it in different ventilated and unventilated conditions. Right. <clears throat> Mike, did you want to also in the we've got about eight minutes left um, talk, yeah, talk a about bit the IUT? Yeah, and your and your work there. Yeah. Okay. Um, just this is this takes us into those areas where I was trying not to uh, trying not to confuse the situation slightly. Sure. Um, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, the IET, uh, which many people will know was the IET, but before that it was the IEEE, um, responsible for our, uh, one of the responsible things was obviously the wine regulations in the UK, the electrical wine regulations, and they came to me to uh, become a technical author for a document that they've now produced, it's a code of practice. Um, and to and be honest, and this is specifically um, about um, DC implementation. It, it, it is. It, it, the, the full title. I was just about to give you the full <laughs> title. is very wide. Um, it's uh, a code of practice for low and extra low voltage direct current power distribution in building. It's a snappy little title. Um, if they want, does, if, if people want to copy, if you want to get hold of that, you go yeah. to the IET website and. Uh, they will supply you with a beautiful uh, printed copy uh, at some price, which okay. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but it's targeted at um, it's targeted at both extra low voltage, which is what we've been talking about, but it also discusses low voltage uh, direct current power. Now, for those people who are not aware of what low voltage means in the UK. They're talking about voltages up to 1500 volts DC. And what we were talking about, what we've been talking about all the way through this uh, set, uh, webinar this afternoon, are systems that operate at no higher voltages than 57 volts. Um, so we are talking low voltages, a lot different than ELV um, systems for uh, power over Ethernet. Um, but they wanted to open the debate about the wider issues of um, DC power distribution for the reasons that somebody discussed earlier. Uh, the question that came in earlier on was, what about, you know, we've got all these, uh, for example, uh, photovoltaics which are generating DC power. You know, can we utilize those in our buildings? Can we, can we remove some of the AC uh, conversion systems, et cetera, et cetera? And so the code of practice is broken down into essentially uh, four delivery sections, if you will. One which we've been discussing this afternoon, which is um, DC power distribution over telecommunications cabling. But that then moves on to uh, three other areas, 
proprietary DC power distribution over proprietary cabling. In other words, people who want to use uh, a different type of cable, not necessarily a category 5, category 6, category 7, but something unique uh, to deliver a different type of DC power distribution. There are many people who want to talk about 24 volt uh, DC powering, for example. 24 volt DC powering, to do that effectively and efficiently, we need to utilize much larger conductors than we will find in a telecommunications cable. Um, the, so a 24 volt solution, which is, again, that's a lower voltage than the, the uh, power over ethernet guys would consider, but because of that, it needs to deliver more current, and to deliver more current, you need less resistance, so you need bigger conductors. So that's a proprietary cabling solution. Um, but also, um, we also shouldn't forget that there are people, particularly in data centers, but also, and I, I would hate to suggest it for my home at the moment, but there are also people who are looking at things like 380 volt DC solutions for exactly the same reasons, to remove AC conversion out of systems. They started thinking about this in data centers, um, particularly, but there are people talking about those sorts of voltages, and the Emerge Alliance, which was mentioned earlier, also interested in this area, using those sorts of voltages in uh, to power perhaps the higher power demand systems, even in homes, such as washing machines and so on, and, and, and cookers, where they could actually utilize those. Now, this, the 380 volt scenarios, the, the benefit of those 380 volt scenarios is largely, is predominantly felt in countries where the predominant AC voltages are much lower than the ones we have in Europe. The, 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 the value or the benefit of uh, a 380 volt DC system in comparison to a 115 volt or 110 volt AC is much greater than it is when we're working at 230 volts AC as we are in Europe. But nevertheless, those are examples of DC power distribution over proprietary cabling because the cables would have to be designed to suit. The IET stuff also goes on to look at um, the conversion, largely in homes, but not necessarily in homes, the conversion of uh, DC uh, power over conventional single-phase AC cabling. So taking AC cabling you've got, particularly for lighting uh, in your own home, but converting that to a DC solution to potentially, not potentially, but in reality, to coexist with the AC solutions uh, under, uh, which are already there. So still using the AC solutions for um, things like uh, your kitchen gadgets, but perhaps the lighting systems would be running on a DC solution, possibly at 24 volts, but using the same cabling. They even go further in the IET work by looking at the use of conventional three-phase AC power supply cabling to convert over to uh, DC. So the IET work is, as I said, in some respects is very complete, particularly with regard to uh, the telecommunications cabling world but it also seeks to provide the basis of moving forward for the IET in these other areas, and that will come along in due course. Right. And I think good. that about summarises it. Yeah, and it's good to see this kind of, they're looking at this in a joined-up way. Yes. Yeah. You know, as, as, as we've already discussed, there are very, lots of different strands to this, in the, and they all affect buildings in different ways. So it's good that they're thinking about 
you know, bringing it all together. Uh, what I will do is um, put a link to uh, that the uh, the IET code of practice on the on our website later as well, um, and also I will be posting the audio uh, from the webinar um, on the website. So also if you want to share that with colleagues, then then that will be up later today. Uh, so I guess it just really remains to say thank you to uh, both you guys and all, all three of you. Sorry. Um, if people want more information, Mike Cook, where do they need to go to find out more about you, what you guys are doing, and also if you have any any slides to share? Yeah, they can they can uh, make contact via the website or use my name with the same uh, same URL, so um, they can get that from me or on LinkedIn or or um, via the website. So okay. yeah, any any of those ways really. And Mike Gilmore, if if um, if anyone needs any information. Same thing with you. Is there, is there a good way to contact you? Um, you can get to me in many ways, but I think you've got on the screen at the moment a, a link that takes you to a page, an HTM page, from which you can actually contact me directly. Perfect. Okay. And also, just uh, to let everybody know, we've we've organising uh, two website, uh, two webinars coming up. Um, one in September, which is going to be with an architect, Paul Fletcher, and that's discussing Rebus Stage Seven and also his thoughts on this concept of, 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 and we talked about it today as well, this, this kind of uh, outcomes over output, how we need to think about the way that we're producing buildings in the future to really, to really improve the building experience for occupants. And then also on the 6th of October, um, I'm talking to this startup in uh, San Francisco called Cameo about their work with real-time video analysis. And this company set up by an ex-Google um, product manager, uh, and it's really interesting about the way that they're looking at video, not specifically from the security side, but but from from you know the actual software side. So that's what's coming up. And um, yeah, again, just to say thanks to the guys for for contributing today. I found it really interesting. And um, yeah, thanks again. Thanks, Jim. Cheers. Cheers, and bye bye. Thanks, thanks to everyone for bye listening. Now.